This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we've got something a little different for you. I'll be speaking with Ryan Holmberg, the author and translator behind a string of scholarly translations of landmark manga by alternative artists like Yokoyama Yuichi, Surita Kuniko, Hayashi Seiichi, and Sugetaro, whose work has otherwise not been part of the recent mass spread of manga around the world. The focus of today's discussion is another seminal artist, Yamada Murasaki, whose 1981-1984 series, Talk to My Back, has just been compiled into an English translation with an extensive essay by Ryan. Ryan Holmberg, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So uh, my name is Ryan Holmberg. Um, I did a PhD in Japanese art history, but I ended up writing my dissertation about 1960s manga, uh, in particular, a manga, manga magazine called Garo, G-A-R-O. It was founded in 1964, and it's seen as the uh, beginnings in kind of the hothouse of alternative and literary and avant-garde manga in Japan. So um, uh, that's my background, and I write mainly about Japanese manga. Um, I teach a bit for various schools at different times. Uh, I'm a manga historian, um, but I'm also uh, a manga translator, and I also serve um, as an agent uh, for a lot of the books that I uh, translate and write essays for. So what interested you specifically in Yamada Murasaki and Talk to My Back? So Yamada Murasaki, um, it's a book uh, of uh, the manga, I guess, I don't know how many pages, it's about 300 or so. It was originally serialized in Garo, the magazine I just talked about in the early 1980s, from uh, 1981 to 1984, I believe. Um, with Drawn in Quarterly, I mean, until now, usually most people's uh, perception of alternative manga is that it's uh, dominated by male artists, which indeed is was the case up until about the 1980s. And most of the stuff that most of the books that have come out in English translation also reflect that gender uh, bias. Uh, most of the stuff that even I've also translated have been uh, works by men. So a few years ago, um, there was kind of a concerted attempt to get more uh, women alternative manga artists out into translation. So that's how ultimately how uh, the Murasaki 
uh, Yamada Murasaki book um, came about. Um, at the same time, uh, the this is about what three or four years ago, the Honolulu Museum of Art um, was planning a large show about women in manga, um, both women artists who work in the medium of comics in Japan, uh, but also the history of shoujo manga, manga for girls, whether they were created by men or by women. So that was supposed to happen a few years ago. I was brought on uh, by the curator as kind of an advisor, but the show got first postponed because of COVID and then it got canceled. So I I wrote an essay for the catalog that will come out in some form eventually um, from some publisher. It still hasn't been determined uh, as an independent book divorced from the exhibition. But my thinking was, since that large show is going to happen, uh, it's a good opportunity to start getting things out in the translation. So at this very same time, I proposed to DNQ that we do uh, Surita Kuniko's Sky is Blue with a Single Cloud, which is another collection of alternative manga by a woman artist, in that case, from the 60s up to the 80s. So the that came out two years ago, I think. And then uh, Yamada Murasaki was kind of a follow-up volume to that from the 1980s. As it happens, I've read uh, both of volumes that you're talking about, and they really do feel, on one hand, similar. Um, as you mentioned, there aren't uh, alternative manga are not known for a lot of female artists, especially in these periods, but also strikingly different. Um, how do you think the two compare? Um, so <clears throat> how do the two compare? So Talk to My Back, the recent book, um, is about a so-called housewife in Japanese suburbs uh, from the early 1980s. And it's based on Yamada Murasaki's own life as a single mother um, at the time. She had started cartooning in the late 1960s and was pretty active up until the early 1970s, drawing not for Gato, but for Gato's rival publication that was uh, published by Tezuka Osamu. Uh, the magazine was called Com, C-O-M. That magazine uh, had quite a few uh, women artists publishing in it. So she was publishing with them, very interesting work that we might translate in the future, Uh, But then she got married and she had to more or less stop cartooning for a number of years. And then after her relationship fell apart, she needed a a means of uh, making money. She was already an accomplished cartoonist. So she got back into cartooning and the ultimate result was Talk to My Back. Um, So Tsurita Kuniko, the other book, was by an artist um, who is roughly the same age as Yamada Murasaki and debuted around the same time, a little bit earlier, in the mid-1960s. Um, she never married. She never had kids. Um, in the early 1970s, um, she contracted lupus and had a very long time being bedridden and uh, with ho- a lot of hospital visits. So, you know, their worlds are very different, and it's also very much reflected in their work. Uh, Tsurita Kuniko's works uh, all tend to be short stories uh, influenced by contemporary art, contemporary cinema, um, contemporary literature, mainly from uh, Europe. Um, So it's a little bit more embedded in uh, what we usually think as the kind of the 
the main countercultural stream of the, of the 1960s. Um, whereas Yamada Murasaki's uh, work, um, I think, fits better with um, our standard depiction, our usual depiction of kind of biographical, um, autobiographical graphic novels about women's lives. Indeed. And you mentioned, uh, I think, a, a key word that really you went into some detail in in your uh, essay, which is uh, house. Well, you, you said it in English, housewife, but in the essay, you added the the Japanese shufu, right? Um, and how is Yamada sort of, how does she view that word? Um, so, you know, the, the word literally means, you know, female head of household. Right. And so it encompasses a lot more things than, you know, just child rearing and uh, domestic work, right, in terms of like life responsibilities. Um, she herself really embraced that part of her life as a single mother um, in her life. Uh, but oftentimes, and she also, you know, based a lot of her work from the 1980s upon those experiences in a very positive way. Um, at the same time, whenever the media, that media really picked up on that. You know, she was one of the first cartoonists, uh, woman cartoonists in Japan, whose private life uh, kind of became part of her public persona, not in terms of how she herself presented it, but how she was covered in the press. And she was pretty widely covered uh, by major magazines in the in the early and in, in mid-1980s. But oftentimes there, they were calling her the Shufu cartoonist, the housewife cartoonist. Um, and she, at least privately in interviews and some afterwards to collections of her writings, uh, really pushed back against being pigeonholed in that way. Uh, you know, kind of a typical complaint that, you know, uh, male artists are free of being uh, always categorized uh, because of their gender or their gender roles that society expects them to um, inhabit, whereas uh, female artists do not have that freedom. So she was kind of frustrated with that, um, what do you call it, that contradiction. Mm. And I imagine that contradiction uh, meant that she had an interesting position in regards to shoujo manga, or girls manga, which was sort of coming into fruition, and at the same time, in a sense, being solidified uh, in terms of uh, I don't like calling it a genre, but, you know, the expectations of shoujo manga around the time she worked. Uh, How did she or how would you position her in regards to shoujo manga? I mean, this is kind of a bigger uh, bigger context to what I'm trying to do in terms of the women artists that I select to propose to publishers to get translated. You know, a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, you know, a fair amount of shoujo manga gets translated into English. And when you read about the histories of manga and you read about manga by women for women, um, it's usually, it's almost always shoujo manga that gets highlighted with the result that a lot of women artists who did not draw in that mode or who did not wish to draw in that mode and did not want to be identified with that mode, you know, and it's aesthetics of kind of girlishness and, florid designs and uh, you know a lot of a lot, a lot of romance that you know because there's a num- large number of artists who did not work in that did not want to work in that that they kind of get dropped out of manga history right 
Um, so part of what I want to do is, you know, introduce women artists who do not fit into that mode, but nonetheless had a Im- big impact on the field. So, um, so there's a number of artists, like even Surita Kuniko, the uh, author of Sky is Blue, the first book that we did. Um, she too, she started off as a shoujo manga artist um, in the mid-1960s, or at least one of the things that she drew. But she stopped doing that very quickly because she did not identify with the aesthetics and the expectations of what that genre meant. At the time, her only, at the time, uh, women artists who did not want to draw in that mode did not have a whole lot of options. So she ended up drawing for Gato, which was open to a wide uh, variety of, you know, types of comics, right? Um but you know she had she dropped some comments over the years about how she didn't want to draw in that mode. Now Yamada Murasaki was in a similar position. Um, she tried drawing drawing shojo esque manga for a little bit in the nineteen seventies, uh, but she came out very explicitly in you know in a, a published article or two about how she was really frustrated by the fact that women artists who did not draw draw in do not draw shoujo manga have, you know, limited um, opportunities in the manga publishing market. So she's a case where she was very uh, consciously trying to, you know, carve out a space uh, for cartooning for herself, but for women cartoonists in Japan more widely, for for women who do not want to draw shoujo manga. So in that, I think she's a pioneer for something that develops later on in the 1980s and 90s, which is a lot of women artists who are not uh, drawing no longer, nor, nor need to, in the styles or the thematics of shoujo manga. It must have been very frustrating for her to be, uh, in a sense, drawing manga at the same time that there are more opportunities for female manga artists than ever, and still finding that she was being pushed in a, a direction that she didn't uh, align with. Um, but that brings us to Garo. You know, I thought it was really fascinating uh, what you were writing about Garo in this book, because as you say, the image I had of them is is not that it was a particularly uh, feminist magazine, I guess. But it sounds like there was a bit of a shift in how Garo dealt with female artists over time. Could you tell us a bit about that? I mean, so... You know, Gato was founded in 1964 by a male artist named Shirato Sampe, a very strong left-wing political commitments. And, but even in his work, uh, does not deal with, you know, gender issues um, very much. And a, a large number of the kind of the classic Gato artists from the 1960s and early 70s, uh, people like Tsugi Yoshiharu or, you know, Sasaki Maki or who else? A number of other people, Mizuki Shigeru, um, are, if they're known for anything when it comes to gender issues, it's for um, representations uh, that can be read as, um, at the very, you know, sexist or at least exoticizing uh, female others. This is a lot to do with the fact that you know, who populated Gato, not just on the artist side, but also on the editorial side. It was a magazine founded by a man, um, and all the editors were men. Um, And that starts changing a bit in the 70s, 
And then by the late 1970s, uh, Gatto hires uh, its first full-time uh, female editor. There have been other people working part-time, and Gatto's founders, Nagai Katsuichi's uh, wife-slash-partner, she also worked a lot at Gatto. But uh, Tetsuka Noriko, who now runs another publisher called Seiden Kogeisha, she was hired in the late 70s. And um, you see in Gatto also at that same time a number of a larger number of uh, women artists writing for the magazine, drawing for the magazine. So this shift in the late seventies, and it's not just it's not just local to Gatto. There was also kind of a mix up happening within um, magazines that were where alternative manga was happening in a larger scale. You know, Gatto made good money uh, in the late sixties. But by the early 1970s, as the kind of counterculture cools and some of its artists and objects uh, stop getting the same kind of publicity that they used to, that the sales really dropped from Gato. Um, so they stopped being able to pay their artists money, right? So where do these artists go that were drawing for Gato? Some quit manga. Um, Others go mainstream. They start doing more lucrative work. Uh, some get their money from uh, illustration gigs or other types of commercial gigs. But at the same time, in the nineteen seventies, there's a what really booms is uh, pornographic manga magazines, and a lot of the people who founded and edited pornographic manga magazines um, were people who were really into sixties manga and also big fans of Garo. So what they oftentimes, a lot of times the magazines were constructed so that you would have the typical fodder for the first, you know, 80%, right? Whatever, erotic masturbation fodder for the first 80%. And then the last 20% would be given over to whatever. Whatever meaning, as long as it had some kind of sex in it, it didn't matter what was drawn. So this kind of became a place for a number of experimental artists to also do work, do interesting work, do experimental work with some sex in it, but being able otherwise to do what they want and also being getting paid for to do it because those magazines sold well. Right. So in the 1970s, you know, porn basically saved alternative manga uh, up until the early 80s. And what's interesting about this is also that uh, a number of uh, women artists were also drawing for these magazines that were marketed to men, right? Um, <clears throat> amongst them, Yamada Murasaki never draws, but Okazaki Kyoko, another woman artist who becomes big in the 80s and really changes uh, manga. Um, and then two other Garo related, or one other Garo related artist that Yamada is closely associated with named Kondo Yoko. She also draws a lot for these uh so-called erotic Gekiga magazines in the late 1970s. So it kind of becomes a place, um, you know, a platform for, you know, women artists to start doing different types of comics outside of the shoujo manga mode, get paid for it, but also becomes a place for them to explore sexuality in a much more open way. So that feeds over, once they stop drawing for those magazines, that feeds over into the into the 1980s, and they're able to explore sexuality and gender issues in a way that's no longer tailed for uh, a voyeuristic male audience. Does that answer your question? 
Indeed it does. And it's very, it's fascinating. It sounds sort of like what's going on in uh, live action Japanese film history with the Pink's films. Um, and there were women who uh, directed and act, uh, you know, had creative control in Pink films, but it sounds like female manga artists maybe had a bit more freedom. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know for sure. I've I've never done like um I, I mean I never done like the stuff I've read about that era in those magazines is more general histories. I do need to do some history on this for some projects coming down the line next year. But um more freedom I think so, but I think that's also about how, you know, manga is structured versus film. You know, you can you can draw it by yourself and get it published. So in that sense, as long as you fill up you draw those eight or 12 or 20 pages yourself and then you submit them to the magazine. I mean, if you if you look at the magazines, the magazines overall structure and who controlled power, uh, I assume it was all men, but in terms of the, that, that's that eight pages of content that you yourself contributed. It sounds like they had total creative control over it. Which is really a fascinating situation to be in. Um, you detailed, uh, uh, Yamada's sort of um, process of uh, deciding on a career path, I guess, uh, which is to say she wasn't always set on being a manga artist, right? Um, so how how was it that she ended up even becoming a manga artist? Um, so like a number, you know, you know, the 19, when she came up in the 1960s, in the 1970s, 1960s was kind of the time where the manga market, as we now know it, was starting to gel in terms of its structures, right? But it hadn't gelled yet. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't always clear. There's multiple paths for one to, be, to start publishing in the manga market, right? And also, it's not... It's not quite like now where if you, you know, I think I might be wrong, but I think like, you know, manga now is kind of like professional sports. It's like if if you if you don't start playing baseball when you're in Little League and like practice all the way through, you never have any chance of making it pro. You know, you got you got to be in it forever. The same with like, you know, you know, certain types of very high skilled fine arts as well. Right. You have to really start young and master certain techniques young. I'm not saying this is the case for everybody now, but there is this kind of sense that you have to draw and draw a lot and draw well from a very early age and keep doing it to be able to make it and then survive in the manga industry just because of the demands of the industry. You have to draw, you have to draw at a certain caliber and you have to do it regularly and fast for years on end, right? So, you know, that wasn't the case back then. It was a little bit more loose and magazines like Gato and Com facilitated a situation in which... You could be, you know, kind of like dabbling in the idea of cartooning while you're also interested in other types of arts and do kind of crossover products. And they would find a place to publish it in a very public way. You know, even now there's zines and other things where you can publish things. But Gato, you know, despite its reputation as being alternative, was not underground at all. It had a very high print run. It was widely read. So if you got published there, you were your work was quite visible, right? So it had a nice combination of like being open to experiment, experimentation by amateurs, um, but also being highly visible within the cultural context of the time. She wanted to do, she, I think, mainly wanted to be a poet, from what I understand. 
And, but of course, you know, poetry has limited uh, remunerative value. You know, can't make a, a living out of poetry. Uh, she also took some classes in uh, fashion design. Um, and I think does some professional work as a fashion illustrator for a while. Um, but uh, ultimately, she all, at the same time started also submitting manga that was crossing those two things, has some elements from fashion illustration, uh, but also some poetic constructions that she was working into her manga. So manga became for her the way to, you know, continue to write poetically and draw in a certain way um, altogether and have a publication venue for it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And that poetic influence definitely uh, shows through in... Um talk to my back, uh, in particular, um, which, you know, is, uh, begins really with quoting somebody else's poem, poem. Um, but also throughout the text, there are these sort of, uh, philosophical musings, I guess, which comes back, I think, to in part something you said earlier about how, uh, it's fiction talk to my back, but it's also reflecting, you know, things that were perhaps common experiences um, and happened in Yamada's own life. Um, so could you tell us a bit more? I know you mentioned before that her marriage breaks down, um, but what exactly went on there? Uh, from what I know, I mean, it's quite a bit. She wrote a bit about her life, her, her um, partner, also wrote a bit quite a what she what he knew about her for the previous relationship after she died um so there's quite a bit of material out there i also you know in doing that book i had access to the artist's daughter so i asked her some questions not so much about what she remembers about domestic turmoil but rather that i said you know how much of this book is facts in, in your eyes she said pretty much all of it but you know I, I i don't i think it's an exaggeration you know i think a lot of it's um i think quite a bit of it. it's like based at least based on her own life i mean the part that's obviously one big feature about the story that's not based on her life is the fact that there's a husband in in the book and the husband you know while he cheats on his wife and while he's kind of absent as a full-time working dad um, they still have a positive and more or less supportive relationship in the end, which was not the case for her life at the time, right? So, you know, she it's a it's a more positive depiction about a a relationship in which the woman is not feeling satisfied with how the man is contributing, the husband is contributing to the relationship. It's much more positive than what her real life was. And her real life from what uh, what I've read and I write about this in the essay is uh, pretty intense domestic abuse um, and real st strict expectations about what she as a woman was supposed to be doing. 
So, you know, which was narrowly focused on housework and child rearing, not working, not allowed to work. Um, and he even apparently kind of banned her from drawing, which is something she had loved doing. Um, so once it became apparent to her that uh, the relationship was no longer tenable, um, she started drawing in secret, um, not just to you know satisfy her creative urges, but also because she knows she could get paid to draw. So that was the way that she started building up enough capital for herself so that she could move out with her two children and support them, right? So in this, in this, in this because of this, it's kind of interesting because, you know, for cartooning for Yamada Murasaki, drawing was not just a way to represent certain issues, quasi-biographical and also relevant to uh, many women in Japan. It was also a means for her to be independent, right? Not just to express her independence, but also for her to be financially independent so that she wasn't stuck in that situation. And really, you know, I read the manga before I read your essay, and the manga does have a critique of uh, Japanese family structures of the time. But then I read your essay and I thought, wow, she, she was very restrained given what she'd been through. Um, in depicting this family, <laughs> it's uh, really a, um, I guess a, a tr- uh, credit to her artistry, perhaps that it can reflect her own life so well, and yet also not reflect her own life. Really, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for sure, I agree. I mean, she did one work a little bit later on that was a little bit. You know, had a little bit more of the sharpness of what she experienced reflected in it. Um, but yeah, I don't know how to parse that. It's like, I don't, I don't know how to like necessarily interpret what you're describing. Others, maybe it's like a personality trait of hers. Maybe has certain, had to do with certain like norms and expectations of how much female anger was deemed uh, acceptable with in print at the time in their early 1980s. And at what point, like that kind of, you know, bald representations of resentment would have worked against her in terms of being able to, um, you know, get published and reach an audience and communicate what she wanted to people, you know? So there might have been, I don't know, there might have been some kind of self censorship there in terms of tone just to. Uh, so that she could get what she wanted in in in, in other ways, but yeah, I, I'm not I'm not really sure why she chose not to do it in a much more strident way. So many of her manga are about um, sort of adult women's lives in then contemporary Japan, but I noticed there was one set of manga that seemed to have a strikingly different theme specifically a feline theme. Um, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how that fits into her overall oof. Right. So her, you know, she has two famous works, Talk to My Back, and then another one is called Showaru Neko, Sassy Cats, right? And it was based off some cat stories about cats, her own cats that she drew uh, beginning in the mid-70s. And then she redrew them for Gato 
I think beginning in 1979 or 1980, I think 1980, can't remember. Anyway, but they're um, little, very short. I think, you know, for anywhere from six to eight pages each, it's about 100, 120 pages worth of them total. But they're little stories about house cats and the house cats are family members. And it's about the house cats thoughts about being house cats and interacting with other cats. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, what else should I say about it? Yeah, it's very, it's very beautifully drawn. You know, she, yeah, um, talk to my back. It's like kind of minimally drawn with like, has a very kind of calligraphic lines, particularly when she's depicting, uh, people, uh, backdrops, you know, the surroundings are usually either are very minimal, either like just blank white or kind of abstract designs. Sassy Katz has a little bit about that, but there you really see her skills as a draftsmanship because she draws the cats in a very fine, very realistic way, both in terms of their movement, how they look, but also how they interact with the world around them. So, I mean, I think between the two books, and I mean, hopefully someday we'll be able to translate and uh, publish Sassy Katz in English also, but uh, you can kind of really see her range as a career artist at that point. Because at that point, despite her hiatus not drawing because of her first marriage, uh, you know, she had been uh, practicing artist since, you know, the late 60s. So, you know, she'd been drawing for, you know, 13, 14 years at that point. But you really see her skills coming out in those two books. I can imagine. I mean, when she started, she wasn't even sure she wanted to be a manga artist. She was really sort of a, an artist of words. And it sounds like her initial art was maybe not the highest quality out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, you know, when you read about, a lot of times you, when you read about manga, especially read about manga artists talking about themselves. Uh, many of them will say that there are, they do not draw well. Right. And of course there's some like, you know, false humility to that. But it's also because, you know, the kind of the standards and expectations in the Japanese cartooning industry, manga industry, are much higher and much stricter, I think, than what you would find in the wide world of comics here, right? In the United States, say, North America. I mean, here, it's like, if you draw superhero comics, right, you're expected to be uh, excellent draftsman of a certain, of a certain style, at least, Right. But, you know, the North American English, I think it's the case also in Europe, too, much more open to artistic styles that do not read as high technical skill. Right. But in Japan, those kind of styles traditionally are, are read as less commercially valuable and even as um, somewhat uh, indulgent on the part of publishers that publish them. And are kind of seen oftentimes, even till recently, as like vanity publications. There's this like a real, real corporate mentality in Japan in general, but it also applies to the manga industry, where it's that if you're not drawing something that can support an entire comp- help support an entire company, company both the publishing company, but also a large studio of of artists producing at work, then you are not um, doing what is proper as a laborer in the manga industry. Um, but yeah, but you know, luckily there's been magazines that don't follow that rule. So people like Yamada Murasaki, even though they weren't, you know, preternaturally skilled, 
artistically in terms of drawing at least um had the space and had the time to um polish their skills and in the meantime also uh, develop uh new styles of cartooning it's an interesting way of putting it the idea that uh a creator should not just sort of support you know the sales of their work but many others as well and it actually makes me think of another question I wanted to ask you, uh, which is that, you know, you have uh, published books, but you've also published multiple sort of several books worth of uh, essays and such that were included separately alongside manga, like uh, as we see in Talk to My Back. Um, and so why have you sort of chosen to go that route or perhaps you didn't choose, but felt you had to just what, what was behind that accumulation of, uh, materials? Um, you know, I get asked this once in a while, usually privately, but the, um, there's a number of explanations and they all seem to be divergent, but they're all accurate. And cause they came up as reasons or rationales or excuses at different points in my career. You know, one is that, um, so I come out of art history and in art history, a typical art historical essay will have, you know, a number of images that illustrate whatever it is that you're talking about. Right. Now, <clears throat> when you're writing about, if you're writing about a painting, you put that image of the painting and of course it's a reproduction. So things are going to be lost, but at least you have the whole image of that painting. It might, even if it's miniature or black and white or whatever it might be with manga, you have to choose one panel or one page to represent the whole thing, right? When you're writing an essay. So what can be more, and there's always this fight, right? About like how many images can I include with my essay? And anybody, you know, you've, you've experienced this too, probably. It's like anybody who write, writes a book with a lot of images, it's a complete fight about how many images you can stick into it. Now with these kind of publishers, with even with in my essays, they, they more or less let me include as many images as I want as long as it doesn't go over the, the page allotment that we have to put it in. And the other thing is that I also get to include, you know, if my essay goes with a 300-page graphic novel, I essentially get to include 300 pages worth of images with my essay. If you look at it as a reverse, right? Not as like, if you look, this is kind of a sick way of looking at it, but if you like, rather than looking at my essay as supplementing the manga, but the manga is supplementing my essay, I have like all the images I want, want there to supplement my image of the whole book. So that's like one, that's like one way of thinking about it. And that, that has like, cro- that did cross my mind in the beginning. The other thing is, you know, money. It's like, I don't get, if you were to actually calculate how much time I put into the essays, it's pennies on the hour, but I do get paid for those essays, you know, and I have total rights over them. So I can collect them in some way down the line and into anthologies of essays. So it's like that, especially now that I work freelance in a mix of freelance and adjunct, it's like even that small amount of income matters to me. And you just don't have that in academia, you know? It's like you're even expected sometimes to pay for parts of your image, uh, essay if they have images in it or or something like that. Or... You know, some academic journals, they expect you to, you don't just license your essay, you have to um, transfer 
the copyright of your essay to them. And that for me, that's that's intolerable. That idea that you transfer your authorship, your not your authorship, but your um, your copyright to them, right? It's like even if it's peanuts, I still want whatever money comes out of that, and I want control over how it's reproduced in the future. So publishing for academic venues for me was always kind of a turnoff. And this also is because I come out of art history, a field which you would think because of their visual orientation would be embracing of comics and be interested in comics. Um, And that certainly was not the case when I started in the early 2000s. Um, uh, In art history, you know, Roy Lichtenstein still defines for many art historians the totality of what comics are worth, which is very little, you know, so that's changing. It's changed a lot recently, but, you know, I still kind of have that. Uh, I don't know. Resentment's not the right word, but that kind of like feeling in my back. It's like, I don't necessarily want to write for them. I want to write for an audience because the stuff that I write about 99, 95% of the people are not going to be in academia, right? Comic scholarship it's not just for manga, but, you know, in Japan on manga, but also American comics or in other comics tradition, it's a field in which the historical scholarship, the archival work has been largely done by non-academics, right? A, a group of historians that academia would call amateur historians just because they don't have the training and the institutional affiliations, right? So, you know, the people who will read what I write with intensive interest, the vast majority of them are not in academia, right? So why not write for the people who actually care? So that's part of it. Um, and then the last reason, I'll just close here, is that, you know, you after a while you figure out what kind of writer you are. And I've found out that I am, I, I'm a, I think I'm an okay writer about up to 10,000 words. But after, after I finished that 10,000 word essay, I don't want to write about that topic at all anymore. So the idea of writing a monograph straight out is I've tried and I've failed. So I now lean towards my strengths, which is writing. Uh, I, t- I tell myself when I start, the essay is going to be 5,000 and then it ends up 12,000, but it's okay because I've, then I've written an entire survey of that artist. So that's like the Yamada Murasaki thing. Um, so it's kind of like, it's like kind of like tricking my, kind of tricking myself. Oh, certainly. I mean, the Yamada one, wasn't that 30,000 actually, something Mm. like that? It's about 16. It's incredibly deep. Um, and as you mentioned the imagery, I mean, I think you included at least one and sometimes three or so images from is it everything she's ever done? I mean, there's, no, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot. You know, it's just like the that's like the freedom for working for smaller non-academic publishers too, because they also don't require you. They also have a, a broader, more liberal notion of fair use for images. But they don't require one to get rights for every last thing. They're not. They're not scared of being sued in the irrational way that most academic publishers are. So, um, yeah. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more freedom over shaping the essay, the content in the way that you want. And the other thing is, you know, cause I know you, this is for kind of an academic audience, right? Maybe some, some people academics, but you know, it's like, 
the thing is like peer review too. It's like peer review in comics scholarship is kind of a joke, especially if you write about things that no one in English knows anything about, right? It's like what can they can they can kind of judge you and advise you on certain kind of like in theoretical frameworks, certain kind of general historical things, certain kind of balance in how you compose something. But you know they're not going to catch factual inaccuracies, even ones that you know every last person in Japan who studies manga history will know about. So there's you know like. You may disagree with me, but it seems at least for manga, it's like the, I would say, you know, peer review process for, for manga studies in English, it's just not in a state where it can function properly right now, because there's not enough people who know a lot about the field to do so. And it might not be the case for certain artists or for, for certain, you know, like for more recent stuff, but like for older things. You know, just like no, no one knows enough to be able to have functional peer review. So the idea that a historical or an essay will thereby be more um, reliable as information because it's an academic journal just doesn't apply, I think, for this field. You raise an interesting point. And, you know, when anime got popular in America fairly quickly, we started seeing just a, a huge boom in scholars who were working with anime. Um, and, you know, some of them would have known more about it than others. But by now, there are a lot of people uh, working on anime at universities across America quite regularly. Um, and one of the reasons that I particularly wanted you to come in and talk uh, about, talk to my back, um, is that you're working in particular on this period where we still don't see a lot of publishing in English on manga. Um, and you are writing for, uh, in a sense, an audience that doesn't necessarily normally read a whole lot of academic publications. Um, I was at the Eisner Awards this summer um, and Hagi Omoto was inducted into the Hall of Fame, right? Uh, and I just remember sitting in the audience and going, we don't really have much about her in English. No. At all, really. Um, no. not but... that. I mean, there was, yeah, I mean, there's more coming out now, but it was also, there's a whole with, uh, not to interrupt, I know you're going somewhere with this question, but like there's, you know, I didn't, I didn't get into manga by reading manga in English. Or I got into it by reading manga in Japanese when I was young, but uh, I'm not going to go into my biography, but there, um, you know, so I wasn't aware of this. You know, I always assumed that like manga, English language publishing kind of like took off in the late 90s. But you'd be surprised by, I mean, maybe you wouldn't be, but like there's even like Hagiomoto, there's just stashed away in small, weird magazines that lasted for two years. There's, if you really compiled everything together, there's quite a bit in translation from all of these artists. It's just been lost because the publications have been tra treated like ephemera and haven't been collected well. But, sorry, the publishers sorry went out of business. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, so perhaps that leads into um, a, a good sort of uh, ending question, because I know we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, um, which is, you know, now that we've got talk to my back, what's coming up next? Um, so what I'm working on now, 
now as in earlier today and tomorrow is um a book called my picture diary by fujiwara maki uh, fujiwara maki um she was an actress and she was a children's book author but she is known in history because she was tsuge yoshiharu's wife um tsuge yoshiharu was one of the big artists who worked for Gato and is kind of the figurehead of literary alternative manga, uh, even to the present. So with Drawn and Quarterly, who published Talk to My Back and Sky is Blue, we are currently doing the collected mature works of Tsuge Yoshiharu. Mature meaning after he became big in the 1960s. So it's, that's supposed to be six or seven volumes. I'm right now working on volume three with them. But um, concurrently to that, we decided to publish this his wife's My Picture Diary, which is uh, one year, I think 1980 or 1981, of her very frankly depicting what life was like in the Tsuge household between her and her husband, the famous artist Tsuge Yoshiharu, and their five-year-old son. So we are publishing that because, uh, for various reasons, one is to kind of continue this, you know, this initiative of getting more uh, non shoujo manga women artists out into print. It's part of that, but also it's to kind of provide a more balanced picture of Tsugi Yoshiharu and his life. Because one of his famous works, The Man Without Talent, is based very much close, very closely on his domestic life. And it sources from things that happen in his life around the same time. So it kind of provides a non-fictional perspective on their life from the same period. So it kind of supplements the other stuff that is coming out uh, from Tsuge Yoshiharu, as well as supporting this initiative to getting more work by women artists out. That sounds fascinating. I really look forward to reading it. It'll be out in the spring. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Yep. Thank you. It was fun.